welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, after last week's ice storm, GCA is finally back in business. It's good to have the doors open and be gathered here on a Wednesday night. Tonight, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 26. The first 25 chapters of Jeremiah so far combine to make sort of the first section. It is all prophecy. It is a recording of all the things that Jeremiah said pretty much over the course of his prophetic career. The next four chapters concentrate on people's reactions to it. And so here in chapter 26, God is going to tell Jeremiah to go into the temple and say everything I said to you. And that seems to include all of the temple prophecies that we read back in chapter 7 through chapter 10. So I don't expect you to remember all of that from months ago, but that is the essence of what makes up these prophecies, the burning of the temple, the coming of Babylon, the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar is going to bring about. And the instruction from God to Jeremiah is, say exactly what I commanded you to speak to them and don't omit a word. So everything that we read back in chapter 7 to 10 are the things that Jeremiah was supposed to go into the temple and proclaim. Now, I find this a particularly helpful bit of instruction from God. It is similar to what he says in the law. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. It's the same thing he says in the book of Revelation. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Instead, go and say what I said. It is similar to Paul's instruction to Timothy that when you preach, preach the word. I find it interesting that God did not expect Jeremiah to go offer his opinion about what God's word was. Here's what God said, but also here's what I think. Or here's my allegorical approach to what God said. God's instruction is just go say what I say. And importantly, leave out nothing. Don't omit anything. I could extrapolate from there and say I think that that's instruction that most all preachers need to heed because there is a tendency in far too many pulpits for people to run into stuff that they're not comfortable with and so they avoid it, read around it, go look at other things that they're more comfortable with. But God's instruction here to Jeremiah or in the law or in Revelation or in Paul's instruction to Timothy, the instruction is always the same which is say what God says. Chapter 26, the first verse, gives us a time frame of when Jeremiah was given the instruction 
to go into the temple and say these prophetic words that God had given him to say. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord saying, thus says Yahweh, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. Speak all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen, and every one of them will turn from his evil way, that I may repent or turn from the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds." Sometimes people read phrases like that and they say, well, see, God is not absolute. God is not sovereign in his determinations because here he says that he might change his mind, which seems to fly in the face of the idea that God does not change. But actually what God has said here in the Hebrew is very similar to what he said in the law. In the law, the promise was, if you obey my law, if you keep my statutes, then you are going to stay in the land. It was very much a land-centric kind of promise. But if you do not obey my law, the way that I'm going to punish you is that I'm going to drive you out of your land. So far in the book of Jeremiah, we have seen that they have chased after other gods, and they've broken God's law, and they haven't kept the Sabbath. Therefore, God is doing exactly what he promised them he was going to do in the original covenant promise, which was, you don't keep my law, I drive you out. But he still holds out that the opposite is equally true. If you do keep my law, if you do change your ways, if you do repent, then you are going to stay in the land, and I'm not going to drive you out of the land. So even though God knows their hard-heartedness, even though he knows their rebellion, nevertheless, the terms of the covenant stand. And the terms of the covenant are very clear. Do what I tell you, you get to stay in your land. Don't do what I tell you, I'm going to drive you out of your land. So God re-emphasizes that here in verse 3 and says, maybe they'll listen, perhaps they will listen, and every one of them is going to turn from their evil way. What's the likelihood of that happening? They are not all in mass going to turn from their evil way, but if they do, then God will not do the calamity that he said he was going to do in the terms of the covenant. So I will relent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. And you will say to them, Thus says Yahweh the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law which I have set before you, again, he's hearkening back to the original covenant deal that he made with them, the original promise at Mount Sinai. If you won't listen to me and walk by my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh 
and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Tom, if you would, real quickly, look up Jeremiah 7. Just go back there, verse 14. You're going to see God saying something very similar, and he's going to mention Shiloh there too. Shiloh was the original place where the Ark of the Covenant rested after they had come across the Jordan River into their own land. So what does Jeremiah 7.14 say, Tom? Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to that place that I gave you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. So the promise from God is, if you don't listen to me the same way that I took my ark, my presence, out of Shiloh, I'm going to remove my presence and the temple from Jerusalem. And that prediction, that prophecy, was made back in chapter 7. A moment ago I said that Jeremiah is essentially here repeating chapter 7 through chapter 10, all of these temple prophecies. And in both places, consistent with God, he said, if you don't listen to me, I will make this house, this temple in Jerusalem, like Shiloh. So the people were so enthused by this extensive prophecy where God not only said, I'm going to destroy this temple, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans down on you, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are going to destroy this temple, but God also holds out the covenant promise If you turn from your wicked ways, then this will not happen to you. And they were so enthused by this, verse 7 gives us their reaction. And their instant reaction was, well, let's just kill Jeremiah. Like, that's going to solve the God problem. Let's just murder him. All the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words In the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people and the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him saying, you must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So like I mentioned a moment ago, this is the beginning of the next four chapters that are going to describe the reaction to Jeremiah. At this point in time, it seems to be Jeremiah, after recording all the prophecies that God gave him over the course of time, He's recording what he endured, what he had to go through in order to say these things. Now, all Jeremiah had to do to avoid the hatred of the people, all he had to do was say, never mind. All he had to do was compromise the word of God. All he had to do was say, well, sure, God said it, but I don't think he meant it. Or spiritualize it away. All the ways that he could have compromised, which is why God said at the beginning, make sure that you say everything that I said and don't omit a word. Because God knew that the people in their guilt were going to hate Jeremiah for saying it. Very similar to what we see in the New Testament. 
when the disciples, when the apostles, when Paul himself goes out and says what Jesus actually said, just like we read last night in men's group, the warning from Jesus was, now they're going to hate you, and they're going to torture you, they're going to punish you, and they're going to think that they're doing God's will in their punishing of you. Well, since these people were in the temple, since we're talking about the priests and the prophets and the people that are there in the temple, clearly when they thought, well, let's kill Jeremiah, clearly they thought they were doing God's will. They thought they were defending the God of Israel and the temple of Israel. So they were confident that Jeremiah was utterly wrong, even though Jeremiah, without compromise, was saying exactly what God told him to say. And I find it interesting that God knew in advance, if he said these things, that they were going to hate him and want to kill him. And yet God's instruction was, don't omit a word. Don't leave anything out. Go say what I said, and they're going to hate you for it. But do it anyway. I think there's a a lesson in that. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, which they believe is a sort of blasphemous thing to do, that you would say that God said these words, And yet, when you prophesy in the name of the Lord, you say that this temple, this house, is going to be abandoned like Shiloh was, and that the city itself is going to become desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered about Jeremiah there in the temple, in the house of the Lord. And when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, and they sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. This is where the leaders, the princes, the mighty men, the people of authority and power there in Jerusalem, that's where they would sit in order to render judgment. So they heard that there was this ruckus going on in the temple, and that Jeremiah was saying these things, and that the people were out to kill him. And so they gather at the gate in order to judge whether or not Jeremiah ought to be killed. And then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. And then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people saying, The Lord, Yahweh, sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all these words that you have heard. So his defense is not, let me logic it out for you. Let me make it make sense for you. Let me compromise it in some way so that you can understand. His defense is, this is what God told me to say, so that's what I'm saying. I'm speaking for the Lord. Deal with it. His response is, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all these words that you have heard. Now, therefore, he goes back and repeats it. Rather than backing off in the least, he goes back and repeats it. Now, therefore, amend your ways. Change your ways and change your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will change his mind. He will relent about the misfortune 
which he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Well, this is a real dilemma for them, because in the law they are told not to shed innocent blood. So now Jeremiah is accusing them and saying, if you do kill me, you are breaking the law in your defense of God. So know for certain that if you put me to death, You will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city that you're busy defending and on its inhabitants, which you were mad at me because I said that the city was going to be desolate and there were going to be no inhabitants. So instead, you're going to bring a curse from God down on these people. That makes sense. For truly, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. So now... The officials have been presented with this situation. There are people who want to kill Jeremiah for the things that he has said, but then they've also got Jeremiah saying, I am speaking for the Lord. I am genuinely a prophet of God, and so if you kill me, that's innocent blood that you are shedding. So they have to come to a determination, and I have to kind of admire the way that they come to their determination. Because they know their own history. They know the history of the kings of Judah. And they know their Old Testament chronicles to that point, what's written about their kings. And so they go back and reference that in order to conclude that if Jeremiah is indeed speaking for the Lord, it would be damaging to themselves to reject his word or to kill him. Here's the way they logic it out. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name or by the authority of Yahweh, our God. So if he is speaking, if he is a genuine prophet, and if he is speaking by God, if we kill him, we are resisting God himself. So we better just wait and see if these things actually come true, considering that he has invoked the name of the Lord our God. But then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all of the assembly, saying, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house will become as the high places of a forest. And did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and then all Judah put him to death? Did he... Hezekiah the king, not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind, relented about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. And yet we are committing a great evil against ourselves. So what they've done is reach back into their own history 
And I think it would be helpful at this point to go back and review that history ourselves so that we know what they have referred to. Turn back to 2 Chronicles for a moment, 2 Chronicles 29. This Micah that they are referring to here, a prophet named Micah of Moresheth, is the Micah that we find among the minor prophets here in the Old Testament. In fact, Micah 1.1 says, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth. Exact same reference. And that word came in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So Samaria and Jerusalem, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were still intact at this point. There were still kings in the north and kings in the south. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. So we're talking about the mid-8th century B.C. here, so the mid-700s B.C., when Hezekiah was king, when Isaiah and Micah were prophesying. And the thing that they are referring to can be found starting in 2 Chronicles 29. Let's start reading around verse 5. It's important to remember that Micah was prophesying during the time of not only Hezekiah, but the previous kings, Jotham and Ahaz. And they were not particularly good kings, and they did not pay attention to most of the things that Isaiah and Micah were saying. But when Hezekiah became king, he did pay attention to those things. So starting in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 5, we read, He said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness away from the holy place, because previous kings had set up altars to foreign gods there. So he was in the process of purifying, cleansing the temple. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God, and they have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling places of the Lord, and they have turned their backs. And they have also shut the doors of the porch, and they have put out the lamps, and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to burn incense. Then the Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, and the sons of the Kohathites, and from the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jahalalel. And from the Girgashites, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah. And from the sons of Elizaphan, Zimri, 
and Jael, and from the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mattaniah, and from the sons of Heman, Jehiel, and Shimei, and from the sons of Jaduthan, Shimei, and Uziel, and they consecrated their brothers, consecrated themselves, and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the word of the Lord. So the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord, and then the Levites received it to carry it out to the Kidron Valley. Thus they began to consecrate on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they had consecrated the house of the Lord for eight days, and they finished on the 16th day of the first month. Okay, so why did I read all that? Because that's the very thing that the rulers there in Jerusalem are referring to, that Hezekiah actually paid attention to what Micah was telling him and saying that God would turn from all the punishment that he was bringing on the people if they would just walk in his footsteps, which Hezekiah actually did. Turn now over to chapter 32, and you're going to see, as Sennacherib is invading Judah, saying terrible things against the king, saying that the king is not going to be able able to protect you, Hezekiah is not going to be able to take care of you, And so Hezekiah prays to God, and instead, Sennacherib is not able to take down the walls of Jerusalem, and they receive protection from Sennacherib. So, again, the leaders in Jerusalem, knowing their own history, would say Hezekiah actually followed after God, and God did not bring the punishment that he had spoken against them. And then starting in verse 20... But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this, and they cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So God protected Jerusalem from their enemies when the king paid attention to what God actually said of them. But even beyond that, if you were to keep reading in this chapter, look at verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit that he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore, Wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. So there's this very clear principle being spelled out in the Chronicles of the Kings which is if you're prideful and arrogant against God, God is going to bring punishment on you. He is going to humble you. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, if you follow after him, in Hezekiah's case, if you cleanse the temple, reestablish the Levites, start the temple service all again, God will relent from the evil that he intends to do. So the evil he intends to do is instructional to the kings and to the people. It is for the purpose 
of again doing exactly what God said he was going to do in the original covenant, which was follow after me, I'll protect you, you'll stay in your land. Don't follow after me, I'll bring your enemies down on you, I'll punish you. If you will turn, if you will repent, if you will follow after me, I'll keep the terms of the covenant, I'll protect you in your land. Okay, so the folks there who are adjudicating the case against Jeremiah are thinking about what they know of Hezekiah and that Micah himself had come to Hezekiah and had said, Zion is going to be plowed like a field. It's going to be mowed down. Jerusalem's going to become ruins. And their question is, did Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Was that their response to Micah? No. Historically, the response was they repented. And because they repented, God relented of the evil he was going to bring on them and, in fact, protected them from the hand of Sennacherib, drove Sennacherib's army back, and Sennacherib was killed in the temple of his own God. That's what God will do for us if we listen to the words of the prophets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah itself put him to death? Did he not instead fear the Lord? And entreat the favor of the Lord. And the Lord relented about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. So if we kill Jeremiah, who is speaking on behalf of the Lord, at least he says he is, he has invoked the name of the Lord. If we do not listen, if we harden our heart, can we expect any different than what has formerly happened? which is we are going to be destroyed. So we really ought to listen. So we are committing a great evil against ourselves if we do that. But then starting in verse 20, they bring up another prophet, and the end of this prophet is completely different than what happened in Hezekiah's case and what happened in Micah's case. Now, this has caused commentators to speculate about why Jeremiah included this story as well. Because this particular prophet, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, we know nothing about him. He appears nowhere else in the Bible. There's nothing else written about him in ancient history that we can find. You can read all the commentaries you want, and they're all going to tell you, yeah, we don't know anything about this guy. And yet, it appears to be real history. This actually happened. It's an interesting story because, indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, which is right outside of Jerusalem toward Benjamin. And he prophesied against this city and against this land, words similar to those of Jeremiah. When King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it, and he was afraid, and he fled, and he went to Egypt, and then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt, Elnathan or Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him who went into Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body 
into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. Okay, so what is the point of that story? Because that story says that King Jehoiakim, who, by the way, is the third to the last of the kings of Judah, he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. He was taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, and then he was returned as the king in Jerusalem as a vassal king who was under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. So you need to know that background because as Jeremiah is predicting these things, Jehoiakim was just king like a king or two ago. So this is real recent history, and everybody knows how badly it ended for Jehoiakim. So perhaps the reason this is being brought up is twofold. Number one, it shows that the torture, the fear that came about for Jeremiah was such that when previous prophets heard these things or endured these things, they actually ran for it. Whereas Jeremiah just said, I'm in your hands. Whatever you're going to do, do to me, but just know if you kill me, you're shedding innocent blood. But the pressure of being a prophet of God was such that when he heard that the king wanted him dead, he ran away to Egypt, and the king, not to be outdone, sent a company of people down to Egypt to find him, to bring him back, and then the king killed him. But then the end of that king was really bad. So that's in contrast to Hezekiah listened to Isaiah and Micah, and it went well with him. But here you have an example of a prophet who was killed by the king, and it went really bad for that king. So in making their judgment whether or not to kill Jeremiah, they've brought up two pieces of history, and they contrast each other. The one is an example of following God as a king and then finding God protecting and then even raising Hezekiah up from his sickness, protecting him because of his humility. And so it goes good for that king as he follows after the word of God. And when he hears from Isaiah or he hears from Micah, he does not seek to kill them. Contrasted with this prophet who has come, Uriah, who has come in the time of Jehoiakim and said the same thing that Jeremiah said, and then Jehoiakim wants to kill him. He runs off to Egypt. He gets caught. He's killed anyway. Jehoiakim ends up being a vassal king under the headship of his enemies, the Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar. So the lesson is pretty dramatic. Not only does it show you the pressure that these prophets were under, Uriah felt like the only option was run. Jeremiah was willing to stand on the word of God and say, do with me what you're going to do, but you're not going to escape God no matter what. And so given those two examples and given that the officials are offering a judgment, which is we should not kill Jeremiah because if we do, not only are we shedding innocent blood, but we have history that indicates that we should not do this. And so as a result of that, it is the hand of Ahikam, who is the son of Shaphan, who was there with Jeremiah 
So he apparently had the authority to make sure that Jeremiah was not put to death. So God preserved him by having a man there that would care for him and having officials there that would offer a proper judgment for him. And yet, for all that, that was a whole lot of details and a whole lot of story time tonight. But for all that, the one thing that I think is most impressive is that Jeremiah didn't bend, didn't change, didn't capitulate, didn't allegorize, didn't change, didn't omit anything, was willing to stand there under threat of his own life and say, this is what God said. And he told me to say all of this to you. What you do to me doesn't matter, but the word of God matters. And so I will say the word of God to you, even if you're going to kill me. And I am impressed that at least the officials and the leaders sitting in the gate were able to look at their own history and say, I think the better part of wisdom here is to not kill Jeremiah because we have very recent proof that when you go against the prophets of God, it does not go well for the kings. So next week, he's going to yet again amp up the same prophecy. He's not going to change in the least. He's not going to compromise in the least. But he's going to do exactly what he was told to do. And the instruction from God is, say my word, say all of my word. Don't omit any part of my word. Don't change it. Don't alter it. Don't compromise it. Don't be afraid of it. Stand up and say what I say, even under threat of people hating you, even under threat of death. Doesn't get more threatening than that. Even under the threat of death, say what I said to say. So whether we're talking about the law, or whether we're talking about preach the word, or whether we're talking about don't change it, don't add anything to it, don't take anything away from it, I think that is the key instruction to be gained from chapter 26 of Jeremiah tonight is that we are told, this is my word, don't change it. Questions? Comments? Nothing? Okay, good. It's good to be back on a Wednesday. It's good to be back talking Jeremiah again. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.